Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I am former stand-up comedian and maybe stand-up comedian again when that occupation exists in the future. And more importantly for you guys, uh, science enthusiast and host of this wonderful podcast. Here we are. I'm a little biased because it's my podcast, but uh, each week on the podcast, I interview uh, typically an academic, someone in in uh, the scientific uh, fields about their research. This week, I have the second surgeon ever on the podcast. I think this is going to be around episode 315, something like that, David. And you're the second surgeon that I've ever had on. Okay. The first surgeon actually did a surgery on me. So, okay. uh, <laughs> so um, for I whatever ask, that's worth. Uh, can I ask what kind of surgery? Absolutely. I had, uh, I, I jumped off something. So by the way, let me finish introducing you. Author of the book, Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? David Hanscom. And I, I'm going to, I'm going to let you like kind of fully introduce yourself and your sure. background quickly. I have, uh, um, Boy, you know what? I was going to say I hope to not annoy my listeners with this story again too much, but I don't think I've told it in a while, and I'm sure I have a lot of new listeners. It was actually the week before I was supposed to record my first Here We Are podcast, um, which would have been recorded in June of 2015. I was out hiking jumped off something that was uh, a bit too high, had barefoot running shoes on too, not good for uh, jumping, and I broke both of my heels. Oh boy. One of them exploded. I had a foot surgery, um, which they were reluctant to even do, um, as it was uh, pretty complicated. Right. And then I later, um, let's see, that would have been, so it was slow to heal. And then, um, right around December of that year, started having fevers, um, had a bone infection. So they went in, did a, did a second surgery in uh, January, 2016. That was the surgeon that I had on my podcast. And, uh, fortunately they got everything, had a wound vac for, um, for a while and spent, so I was a, a, a year on crutches, another year on with a cane. And, um, I would say now I'm, uh, right around, uh, I don't know. It, Maybe 95% is overly optimistic. I have about two or three bad days a month. Okay. The rest of the time, barely even notice it. Yeah, that's a tough fracture. That's, that's one of our, you know, I do orthopedic surgery. And so calcaneus fractures are really tough ones. And what's fascinating about the human body is that even though that's your heel bone, it's like an yeah. eggshell. It's amazing. I mean, I'm, I don't know. It's fascinating how the body is designed, <laughs> but it's like a hollow bone. But the geometry is such that you could take endless amount of stress on it. But when it breaks, it explodes. 
Because your <laughs> blood supply to that part of the foot isn't great. So chance of getting an infection is high. Chance of it not healing is relatively high. And then the fact that you're doing over 90% better is unbelievable, by the way. Yeah, Most people that's... don't get that result. And so, yeah, you're, you're a lucky guy. I'd say so. I, I, I think I'm very lucky. They were reluctant to do it in the first place because they, they I mean, the, the, the foot surgeon that I talked to, he was, he was like, oh, and then there's a whole insurance fiasco going on because I was out of state at the time. And, and it was, you know, so, so me actually going in and getting the MRIs and x-rays and stuff like that was covered but then because the surgery was like days after they weren't considering it an emergency and i was maybe going to have to go from arizona to california but they were saying that i couldn't travel in a plane because of uh of all of the swelling and inflammation and maybe i could make it in a car it was a whole uh mess i i ended up um he I ended up going in through urgent care um, in a hospital when he happened to be right. on duty, right? And uh, and did the sur that was my idea that I had to come up with. Well, yeah, we <laughs> should, we used to do that all the time. I know that game very well. So yeah, that worked. That I mean, I I owe the guy my my left foot yeah, literally. You do. Um, and it, it was I don't want to say his name because of that situation, um, but my goodness, it was it was it was a real awakening in terms of the healthcare system, and and then uh, the surgery was very interesting, and then and then there was a there was a pretty big battle with healthcare over. I lived in California. I had 60 steps to get up in my apartment. I was on crutches with two broken feet. Mm -hmm. And so I had to come home to Wisconsin so someone could care for me in my, in my parents' house and uh, getting um, appointments there. Then I was out of network again, and it was a whole, oh my gosh, it was, yeah, it was a nightmare. It's bad. Wow. So, so <laughs> can I ask where you live now? Uh, and now I'm in Wisconsin. Oh, you are okay for the <clears throat> pandemic. I was living on the road uh, three cities a week and um, before this. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, and th that's another thing with our. I, I don't. I don't know if you have thoughts on healthcare. Another one of my frustrations. So, I've been a touring comedian for 14 years. Okay. The last two years, I I changed things to continue uh, to travel actually more so. So okay. like I said, 2019, I was in about three cities a week. I wanted to get therapy. I was technically living in Washington at the time, but I was never there and I couldn't get remote therapy because therapists couldn't, um, right. uh, couldn't give me th uh, therapy when I was like in Texas or right. whatever, doing a show out of network. Right. Unbelievable to me that we don't have a better system in place. Well, I'm not sure we want to talk about this today, and I'd love to come back on your show, but I mean, basically, I hold the healthcare system responsible for a pandemic. Please walk Sparky for me. No way. <laughs> I'll throw in a caramel frappe. Ooh, make it a large deal. Get a sweet deal. $2 any size McCafe beverage on the McDonald's app. Between you and me, Sparky, I would have walked you for free. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. 
Offer valid through 4322 or participate in McDonald's. Valid one time per day. McDonald's app download and registration required. Really? Absolutely. Well, I mean, first off, you should know I let my guests steer the ship as, as much as they want to. I tend to go off on tangents. I love making things conversational, but I'm happy to have you go off on whatever. So you, you can say whatever you like about that. Um, uh, or we can also just get right into your book too. I'm also happy to have you on another time to talk about that because that's fascinating. So, um, yeah, but the thing is what is going on right now is that <clears throat> it's a long story. I have written three books, two editions of a book called back in control, a surgeon's roadmap out of chronic pain. Clever uh, name, by the way, <laughs> by the way, well done back in control. <laughs> And then the other book is called, Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? And I quit my surgical practice in January 2019 to pursue this full time. Because what I saw the medical profession do is they're treating symptoms and not the root cause. And the bottom line is that we have a chronic pain epidemic. We have opioids, we have alcohol, every drug you can imagine, cocaine, et cetera. So we have a tremendous epidemic of substance abuse, a tremendous epidemic of chronic pain, and it turns out we had the diagnosis completely wrong. Hmm. So what happened, I went through chronic pain myself for 15 years. I came out of it by luck. I didn't know how I got into it. I did not know how I came out of it. And through a endless quest since 1990 to figure out an answer, this last year basically all came together. Now, that being said, I say that nothing's ever absolute as far as medical knowledge. But what happened in 1990, I was driving across the 520 bridge in Seattle and had a panic attack, which means my heart started to race. I started to sweat. I thought I was going to die. And I went from being a fearless spine surgeon. I did spine, I've did. i done spine surgery for 32 years, a lot of complex spine surgery. And I was used to, I was used to dealing with stress. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I go from that to a panic attack. And I swear to God, I didn't even know what the word anxiety meant. So how, yeah. did, how did I go from a fearless surgeon to crippling anxiety in one day? And then I could not put that back into the back over 15 years. Hmm. Couldn't do it. So then I started developing multiple physical symptoms like migraine headaches. My feet started to burn. My ears were ringing. My stomach was a mess. I had over 17 symptoms associated with chronic pain. I still did not, what was going, did not know what was going on. Obviously, being a physician, I had access to all sorts of medical care. Nobody could tell me the answer. Hmm. Turns out the answer is extremely clear. Turned out that the data is right in front of us. It also turned out that modern medicine is simply ignoring the data. Hmm. And so the approach is basically taking documented medical treatments, presenting them in an organized manner, and by learning how to calm down and regulate your body's chemistry, symptoms disappear. Basically, the problem is threat versus safety. Mm-hmm. When your body is under threat, you have your heart races, you breathe faster, you sweat, your muscles tense up, become hyper alert. That's not psychological. That's a response to the environment. Our body automatically directs us in a way to feel safe. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is that you automatically avoid too bright of light, too loud of a sound, hot pavement, hot stoves. So your body's on autopilot. Every living creature gravitates towards reward and avoids threat. Mm-hmm. 
what happens is that humans have a unique characteristic called consciousness. We have language. We happen to put a name on this sensation called anxiety. And so what happens, anxiety is a response to a threat. It's not the cause. Mm-hmm. Anxiety is just a word that describes your body's chemical state when you're under threat. Mm-hmm. What also happens is that we also know that mental threats express unpleasant thoughts, emotions, repressed thoughts and emotions are also a threat that's processed in the same way as viruses, bacteria, bullies, etc. Physical threats and mental pressure threats are processed in the same part of the brain and they have the same output. So you have unpleasant sensory input, either mental or physical threat. You have your nervous system that processes it. Then you have a response that automatically keeps you safe. You'll pull your hand away from the stove. You'll look away from bright light, etc. But humans have a major problem and that we cannot escape our thoughts. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I can think about a threat. Uh, I can think about a threat 40 years from now. I can think about a threat that'll, I can think about the the sun burning out <laughs> millions of years after I'm I'm dead and, and think about threats that I'll never have to experience. Right, but my cat doesn't think about stuff like that. Right. And I used an example on an earlier interview today where yesterday I had some friends in the backyard. My wife's cousin was over with her kids and Grand, grandchild and so she had a small dog and for some crazy reason I thought it would be a good idea to bring my cat into the backyard like mm-hmm. you know this friendly dog my cat's sort of benign and it didn't go well my cat just went crazy started hissing screaming and took off like her rocket so that was her response to this perceived threat called this dog mm. so so she had a chemical reaction her she took action she took off and she was safe She's been programmed that dogs are dangerous. Same thing humans, we are perceived lots of physical things are dangerous, but if you were bullied at school 30 years ago and a person walks up to you that resembles that bully, what's your brain gonna do? So what happens, we get programmed by our past, we, we stay safe and we stay alive by this response to the environment that keeps us safe. It's how we evolve. And again, we use these words. So anxiety is simply a description of the body's neurochemical state. It is not psychological. Mm-hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong, but most people think in terms of anxiety as being psychological. Is that a first statement? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd say so. You go to a, you go to a psychiatrist. Right. But here's the problem. Your, your unconscious automatic brain processes about 20 million bits of information per second, 20 million. Mm-hmm. My pupils dilate, they constrict, I shift to my chair, I automatically behave in a way, in other words, when I'm talking to you, I'm not thinking about how to move my tongue or my jaw, it's all automatic. It's incredible mm-hmm. how living organisms evolve. Same thing with my cat, she, she, works, she jumps fences, she does all sorts of crazy acrobatics, it's all automatic. Mm-hmm. So again, humans have language that processes thoughts and concepts in the same way we process any other physical reality and we react to it. But this unconscious survival set of reactions processes about 20 million bits of information per second. Guess how much the conscious brain processes? Oh, a little tip of the iceberg there. 40, 40. It's <laughs> 20 million compared to 40. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. how are we going to conquer anxiety mentally? You're not going right. to do it. 
right? Mm. So, and again, anxiety is this whole body response to a threat. Mm-hmm. I do not like the word integrated medicine anymore. I do not like the word mind-body syndrome because it implies a separation. But how does your body exist without a nervous system? It doesn't happen. Right. How does your nervous system exist without your body to support the nervous system? Mm-hmm. So it's all just one unit. And again, this thing we call anxiety is simply the body's total response to the environment. Now, mental threats, if you want to call it psychology, is what it is. I don't like the word psychology anymore because it's such a loaded question. But the mental threats are a problem because you can't escape your thoughts. Mm-hmm. Every human being has this problem. We have a sustained exposure to these unpleasant, repetitive thoughts. And then we don't suppress positive thoughts. We repress negative thoughts because we don't like them. And the reason we don't like them because it gives us you, you this uncomfortable sensation that we call anxiety. But remember with my cat or us both, that the sensation is tended to be so unpleasant that it forces us to take action. Every human being has a baseline exposure to thoughts. And if your environment is adverse or you're raised in a very chaotic, abusive environment, you're hyperactive, you're hypervigilant. Because when you were a kid, things were dangerous. So things in the present seem more dangerous, even though they may not be, even though they may not be more dangerous they're perceived as dangerous, your body still reacts. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you have 20 million bits of information per second being processed by the conscious brain. That's this response. The conscious brain is 40. What would happen to you if you did not have anxiety? How long long would you live? Well, you'd probably um, find yourself uh, jumping off even higher um, cliffs than I did for right. for fun. Right. Well, you live, you live about two minutes. I mean, yeah. you, you wouldn't breathe. You'd walk out into the street. I mean, anxiety is what keeps you alive. Mm-hmm. So it's powerful. You can't get rid of it. If you get rid of anxiety, you would not survive. Mm-hmm. Okay. So anxiety is powerful. It's necessary. It's a gift. It's amoral, by the way. It's an amoral survival response. There's all sorts of destructive feelings and thoughts that come along with this sensation. You can't control it with rational means. How do you solve anxiety? And you won't answer the question, by the way. It's just a rhetorical question. Uh, uh, right. <laughs> but I, but yeah. I, I really want you to think about yeah. this for a second because this is the essence yeah. of my entire project. I actually quit medicine to do this because it turned out yeah. I, was, I was doing surgery on anxiety. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't work. In fact, it makes things way worse. And I'll explain that in a second. So anxiety mm-hmm. is not psychological. That response is physiological. In other words, that's how the body works. You're full of stress chemicals. And one of the responses that you get with this stress response is inflammation. So what I had forgotten about, what I learned in medical school, but had sort of forgotten about, is that part of the stress response is the immune system. Mm-hmm. And so you have this huge inflammatory response in addition to the physical, in addition to the heart rate, et cetera. And the problem is under sustained threat, especially repressed emotions, your body's inflammatory markers are way up. It turns out that cardiovascular disease, peripheral vascular disease, adult onset diabetes, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, all are inflammatory disorders from sustained threat. Because these white blood cells, or these inflammatory cells just chew up the blood vessels. They chew up cells in your brain. They chew up the nerves. Autoimmune disorders aren't subtle. People get psoriasis where their skin rashes all over their body, et cetera. 
So you get these real physical changes from sustained threat, which is mental threat. Again, when you have lupus, for instance, which is a horrible inflammatory disorder, that's not psychological. Your body is being destroyed. So what the psychological part of it is that mental threat, which is sustained. Then it also turns out that anxiety, depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, and bipolar are all inflammatory disorders. They are not psychological either. So uh, I like- wait, wait, what was, can you repeat that list real quick? I was just making a note that I, of something that I wanted to revisit of yours. And then you were saying something else interesting that I, uh, did you say bipolar? It turns out that anxiety, depression, okay. bipolar, obsessive compulsive disorder are all inflammatory disorders. Again, they're all a response to threat. Remember, again, going back way back to the conversation, this was so critical. So the the question was, you have a powerful unconscious response. It's not it's not subject to rational control. How do you decrease anxiety? So first of all, you just simply have to lower the inflammatory markers. That's it. Now, there's a bunch okay. of ways of doing that. Lots of categories of doing that. But at the end of the day, you have this elevated. So this friend of mine, Dr. Stephen Porges, who wrote a book called The Polyvagal Theory, Hate the word anxiety. I do not like the word anxiety anymore either because it's just a word. So we have this reaction, humans put a word on it, and then this word has all sorts of connotations to it. But the bottom line is you have behavioral changes in an effort to escape this incredibly unpleasant survival feeling. And so you have addictions. Well, okay, the addictions are a way of masking that feeling that don't work long term, they work short term while you're totally loaded. Well, actually, guess what? You're not feeling much pain. You're not feeling much pain, right? Mm -hmm. So we have these endless efforts in life of trying to escape this survival feeling. And the reality is there's a bunch of ways simply to drop down the feeling. So there's three parts to doing that. One of them is to, to understand is what you have, it's not who you are. I wrote a website post called Anxiety, your bodyguard or prison guard. Anxiety is what you have that keeps you alive. It's a gift. But if your identity gets wrapped up in this reaction, then it becomes your prison guard. Mm. What imprisons us in life is basically our anxieties. Mm -hmm. So the first step is separate from it. So I say, look, get rid of the word anxiety out of your vocabulary and visualize a large thermometer on the opposite wall and just use the words elevated stress response, elevated sympathetic nervous system response, whatever you wanna call it, just create a term for this elevated stress response. Get rid of the word anxiety and visualize if you're agitated or upset or whatever it is, you just simply visualize how high the thermometer is going. Then there's a bunch of ways of just dropping it down. Hmm. That's what solves anxiety. What doesn't That's work is talk therapy. Mm. Right. <laughs> I I love that you said. Even though I'm a, I'm a, I'm an advocate for people. Uh, I I'm an advocate for people expressing um, themselves and 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 um, and sharing what they're going through. I I think that one one of the things, even though I haven't really done much therapy myself, one of the things that's appealing about it is that uh, being from like a wholesome um, small town, Midwestern rural upbringing, 
like it was a pull up your bootstraps you never kind of you never talk about any issues and you grin and bear it and if you don't have anything nice to say don't say anything at all and there was no real vulnerability there and so i i i enjoy the expression of vulnerability but at the same time i've always been a little skeptical of uh of of therapy and i also i find myself I say this uh, I say this quite a bit because I talk about depression a fair amount on this show is that I find my that sometimes I when you when you mentioned um kind of becoming a part of your identity I've talked about this with uh co comedians go through this of like becoming the sad clown and I've broke down kind of my take on how that happens sometimes but it it does uh other comedians and certainly myself sometimes uh, you know, tend to romanticize um, these uh, these aspects too, and, and buy into this idea of like this is who I am. Or but I've been diagnosed bipolar, and I tell people I'm bipolar, and at the same time I'm also like, <laughs> but am I? I fight I fight against that uh, diagnosis sometimes. So, too, you, you, so you you have the diagnosis now. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And and I've had I've had two pretty serious manic episodes in a couple other more mild ones and then i've had what what's characterized as hypomanic uh episodes through since uh early 20s or or uh or something like that but i still don't know what to make of it i i mean i'm i'm uh not, not that i know you know the ins and outs of everything that you're talking about but i'm familiar with uh with um some of uh, i i i love um robert sapolsky is one of my favorite scientists i i i love all of his work with the stress response system and and um and i i i uh so i, I love this I've, i had my first um panic attack myself in february 2017 same thing i i'm this adventurer i like jump off things i rock climb i do stand-up comedy i i you know get into all this you know travel around the world and do all this other stuff never never once had anything that i would call anxiety and when i when i first experienced a panic attack and i went to a hospital thinking this is a panic attack most likely but i still might be having a heart attack right now and should go just in case and have had bouts of what would typically be characterized as anxiety ever since so um i'm I, i'm a attentive audience i would say and inflama the inflammation stuff is very interesting too because this is i think a lot of people the it seems like this is starting to get some attention these days because a couple decades ago when people were first starting trying to make these connections i mean it was met with a lot of skepticism right this idea that like something like you know chronic body inflammation or having tennis elbow or something like that could maybe um make you more susceptible to dementia or something later on that that uh that inflammation was impacting um uh how how the brain aged and these other um, yeah alzheimer's is absolutely an inflammatory disorder period yeah. end of story mm -hmm. so it turns out that all chronic disease whether it's mental and physical is the same thing dementia parkinson's cardiovascular disease prophylactic disease diabetes all those are the same disorder Mm -hmm. is exposure is constant exposure to threat so let me ask you a question yeah so i think 
what I'm what I like to do, this is up to you, is to just leave the message and I can talk to you if you would like right now, do a little bit of coaching right now about how to pull you out of this because this is incredibly solvable. Yeah. It's completely solvable. Sure. Okay. So the first step to understand is solvable by understanding that you can't solve it. Okay. <laughs> hey, so, but I want a short, quick, easy fix. Oh, it's fast. To all of my problems. Well, no, it, is, it, it actually is fast. It actually is extremely <laughs> fast. Within two or four weeks, people change. It's, yeah. it's very fast. Yeah. It is. So so the number one thing, that's why I call it solving the unsolvable. Okay, you have the survivor response. You can't get rid of it. It's a 20 million bits of information per second compared to 40 bits of information per second that your conscious brain processes. So you can't do it with mind over matter. Talk therapy doesn't solve it. So the essence of the solution is there's two. The, the bottom line is you find ways to lower your body's stress response. So there's direct ways, and there's called neuroplasticity, where you stimulate your brain to change. And so the direct ways is that you want to simply decrease inflammation. What happens, you use tools to stimulate your vagus nerve, which is extremely anti-inflammatory. Hmm. So for I, so I don't know, I don't know. Can you explain the vagus nerve? Because this is something I don't know much about, and I I, I keep on it keeps on popping up in the uh, in the zeitgeist these days. I I hear more and more of it. So there's 12 nerves that come directly off your brainstem, and the vagus nerve is the 10th one. For instance, the facial muscles, which are the seventh and fifth cranial nerves, come right off the off the brainstem. And the vagus nerve is what controls your stomach, your bowel, your bladder, inflammation. The vagus nerve is essentially the parasympathetic nervous system. So that calms things down. Yep. The sympathetic nervous system is what fires things up. Mm -hmm. And what you're doing is that you're stimulating, stimulating your parasympathetic nervous system or the vagus nerve to calm things down. Mm -hmm. So for instance, just you know, drop your shoulders for a second. All right. Take a deep breath. And we found out that slow breathing, just breathing slowly, nothing special about it, stimulates the vagus nerve. When you rub your forehead right through here, that actually stimulates your fifth cranial nerve, which goes to the vagus nucleus. When you rub the back of your neck, you're stimulating the 11th cranial nerve, which is around the, the accessory nerve. When you um, hum, just humming, stimulates mm. the back of your throat, vibrates it. That stimulates the seventh cranial nerve, which again goes to stimulates the vagus nucleus. Mm -hmm. There's certain pitches of music like lullaby, like lullaby type music works because you're directly stimulating the vagus nerve. So things that things that actually drop inflammation are direct things that mindfulness, meditation, relaxation, massage, all those things directly stimulate the vagus nerve. They're they are anti-inflammatory. So it's not some mm -hmm. psychological type process. You sim you simply honoring the body's physiology and calming it down. So mm. those are direct ways of dealing with it, which are necessary day to day, minute to minute. But the other category, which is equally as important, maybe more important, is I'm, I'm assuming from what you just told me that you understand the word neuroplasticity. Hopefully your audience does. Absolutely. Right. I even have a wonderful story for you, but, but please go on. Right. So your brain changes every second. And when I was in medical school 40 years ago, we thought the brain was fixed, it didn't change. Every second, your brain changes structure. 
new cells, new myelin, new glial cells, new structure all the time. So you can't control your brain, but you can sculpt it and direct it to whatever you want. And the metaphor I like to use, you're, you're basically creating a new desktop on your computer, a virtual desktop. And this new set of brain circuits doesn't include pain. So what you do is if you're trying to fix the problem, you're trying to fix your pain, trying to fix your anxiety, where's your attention? It's on the problem, not the solution. Mm -hmm. The metaphor I like to use is that of learning a new language. You don't learn French by trying to fix your English. You learn French by focusing, <laughs> focusing on French. And that's where, your brain, that. your, that's where your brain goes, right? Yeah. So same thing with my terrible golf swing. I've never had a good golf swing because I'm always trying to fix my bad one. I'm not visualizing my new one. Mm -hmm. And so as you, so what happens is that Positive thinking is sort of a disaster because it suppresses negative thinking. That's repression. Mm -hmm. But the way you solve chronic pain is you move, your, you, you create new circuits that don't have pain. So the sequence of neuroplasticity is awareness. Then you separate, create some space, and then you reprogram. Mm -hmm. And so... David, if you and uh, if you're trying to get me to, uh, I mean, if you're trying to get me to stop hating myself, good luck, buddy. I, I, I have a, I have a career that I have to. You don't, have. you don't have to. <laughs> so, so you can't, you can't do that. They're, they're embedded, they're embedded circuits. Okay, you, yeah. can't, you can't, you can't get rid of them. Yeah, that's the key. And this is solving the unsolvable. Right. Right. So what happens, you literally program your brain, you, you become a sculptor. You start sculpting your own reality, which again, not positive thinking, but a positive vision. Mm -hmm. So you can't change a past. You can't change the links to the past. And when you quit trying to do that, it releases a tremendous amount of energy to actually move forward. And as you move forward, your brain goes to a different spot and things change dramatically. Mm -hmm. So... Basically, it's about neuroplasticity. You're stimulating your brain. You're stimulating your brain to change the direction you want. You're, tr you're trying to. You're not trying to fix or analyze the past, and that's why talk therapy doesn't work. Because where's your attention? It's on the problem. So anyway, the, the, so in summary, you, you basically separate this anxiety reaction or elevated stress response from who you are. Visualize that thermometer, and then there's direct ways of dropping down the stress response with breathing, relaxation, sound, etc. Then you can stimulate neuroplasticity with the sequence of awareness, separation, and reprogramming. So what I've done, I wrote this book called Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain, which gives you the framework of everything we just talked about. And I've sort of learned the hard way. It's too hard to explain this in a short segment, even in my patient's office with time. So the book gives you the background of what we're talking about. Then I created um, a website called backincontrol.com which between the book and the website, probably over 1,500 people have gone to pain-free. And it's the mental pain that goes to the floor. The mental pain is the biggest problem by far. And one of my website posts is that, I'm, am I operating on your pain or your anxiety? But I, if I give patients the choice to get rid of their physical pain or their mental pain, they want to get rid of the mental pain. They can't tolerate the relentless anxiety. Same thing with me. I developed a full-blown obsessive compulsion disorder, which is horrible mental pain. It's the ultimate anxiety disorder. The prognosis is terrible. I'm fine. I'm perfectly fine. In fact, I'm thriving at a level I never knew was possible. So what happens, again, when you try to fix these things that aren't fixable and separate and move forward, it's just 
consistently remarkable. So what happened last week, and I released a new um, process called the DOC journey, the DOC journey. It stands for direct your own care. And the key issue is here that think about in the animal, think about in the animal kingdom, what are the rewards for being vulnerable in the animal kingdom? Oh, there's not as many of them. Maybe you get some mates. Perhaps you get some higher Tem -tem -tempor uh, temporarily. Yeah, but no, you die. Right. In, the, right. in, the, in nature, if you are vulnerable, you die. There's no. Re there's essentially. I mean, there is some temporary chemical changes that allow, allow animals to mate. But in the big picture, yeah. being vulnerable is rewarded with death. Right. Mm -hmm. Like for instance, in a reindeer herd. I mean, I'm, I'm open to suggestions, but as far as I can tell, being vulnerable is not necessarily rewarded. In, in well, the, there, in, there, there, there is like a, there, there's kind of honest indicators of fitness, which, which by uh, like re require kind of handicapping an individual's abilities in in um, in in um, purposeful and con in conspicuous ways to to advertise to others, potential predators, potential mates that, uh, that look how hardy of a individual I am, I'm able to impose this cost on myself and, uh, and overcome it. Um, that's, you know, this is classic, like peacock feather stuff, not to make things any more, more complicated than need be. Your, your point is very valid. I was just, yeah. Anyway, with humans, though, we're, we're, <laughs> we're animals. Yeah. Okay, but with the peacock and the feathers, basically that's a power show. That's not that that person's showing that this person's is powerful, not vulnerable, right? Right. So yeah. yeah, so the human experience, we're animals also. So our basic survival instinct, again, the anxiety frustration factor is a survival response, is powerful, and it keeps us safe. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the essence of human, so humans have a problem called language and consciousness. We cannot escape our consciousness. What makes humanity worth living is vulnerability. But we're not programmed to do that. Mm -hmm. So we're anxious, we're frustrated, we're trying to survive, we're competing with each other for resources, et cetera. Et cetera. And so we're constantly doing this thing called self-esteem that I'm, I've got this, this, and this compared to this, this, and this. It's an endless judgment pattern, which, by the way, doesn't help anything at all. In fact, it's pretty deadly. Different topic. But in general, the essence of life that makes life interesting and rich is human relationships and play. Because, but unfortunately, that's not our instinct. So we're still finding this, still finding anxiety and frustration. And the essence of the process of healing is actually a, a learning to be vulnerable. So remember, the antidote to anxiety is control. When you lose control, your body kicks in more stress chemicals and you become angry. Anger keeps you safe. Anger is also the complete block to rich relationships. It's also the block to healing chronic pain. And the problem is the biggest block to healing chronic pain is people do not want to give up their anger. It's powerful. So anxiety is vulnerable. Anger is powerful. People do not want to give it up. But they're also programmed to be that way. But the problem is not wanting to give up the anger. It's the lack of capacity to be vulnerable mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so that's what the process does so it's called the doc journey the direct your own care journey 
um, is at thedocjourney.com. And it's a process based on awareness, hope, forgiveness, and play. And you can't really truly play when you're angry. So what happens, there's a sequence. So what, what happens, and you also cannot become vulnerable unless you've trained your brain to become vulnerable. And you don't want to become vulnerable with people that you don't trust. I mean, you have to trust somebody to be vulnerable with them. And so it's a process of training your brain to respond to threat in a way that you can handle it, not mind over matter. But as you learn to be vulnerable, then you can start giving up your anger. Then life starts to expand. So again, going back to the original conversation, we're covering a lot of material here is threat versus safety. Yep. The essence of the problem is exposure to ongoing threat. The essence of the solution is teaching yourself to feel safe. And it's a learned skill. Hmm. I, um, hmm. Well, I was going to share that. Whatever. I'll, I guess I'm, I'm going to share it anyway. I was, uh, when you're talking about neuroplasticity, uh, it made me think of something pain-wise that happened that was um, really pretty miraculous. It was, so this was, um, this was 2017, uh, two, just over two years after I had first broken my foot, I just stopped using a cane. I think I still had it in my car or whatever, still had foot pain. I went and did um, ayahuasca at a at a place it was my third time doing it or whatever and it was you know psychedelics kind of known for their um for their neuroplasticity um and i i had uh i i am I'm, I'm a fan of psychedelics i'm also skeptical of 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 people claiming too much um and being a bit evangelical i've even done it myself in the past and I had, uh, I had this absolute, just one of the most interesting things happened where, and by the way, it also led to a manic episode. So th this isn't some like, go out there and do ayahuasca story, but something very interesting happened uh, where my, the medicine woman that gave it to me beforehand, she was like, um, you should focus on that foot of yours. And I was like, yeah okay and just didn't really pay any attention to that whatsoever um i i kind of i had had ayahuasca twice before that it was pretty mild um and uh, and this was a this was a big experience and what happened was afterwards i mean even like the following day um i walked normally for the first time in uh two years and that lasted for about a month and kind of what i what i realized from that experience was that much of much of my pain and much of my limp at the time was just habitual you know i i was just so used to walking that certain way and used to the foot being painful that i was that i had built these patterns and was oversensitive to it and that experience for like i said there there was downsides to it as well but that experience in, in relation to my foot allowed for this this reset in the way my my um mind perceived pain and it was i mean it was a night and day difference and i was skeptic it was like i guess it was everything can be a placebo but at the same time 
Like, I didn't believe it. I didn't even think, I completely disregarded the whole right. thing as, as a possibility. And it was, it was, it was like the difference between, um, uh, um, I, I don't even know what, I, I mean, it was the difference between a fair amount of pain and walking with a pretty severe limp to walking completely normally without a limp in, in a few hours. Well, that's the experience I'm talking about with chronic pain. Let's talk about the mental pain and bipolar for a second. It's the same process. Yeah. So what happened with the ayahuasca is, um, you know, we're using psychedelics a little bit of medicine. I am not an expert. So really, mm -hmm. I really can't talk about that from a medical perspective. But it's being looked at more carefully than it used to be. Second of all, it's a, it's a sensation of opening up, right? Mm -hmm. You're vulnerable. Yeah, that's that's the main point that right. I, I make. It's not even about psychedelics in and of itself. It's just a metaphor for this opening. Right. So it wasn't mind over matter. It wasn't about mm -hmm. believing or disbelieving. Um, my concept of placebo is that there's no such thing as placebo. It's just connecting your body's capacity to heal and mm -hmm. connecting to what is. So with this doc process, for instance, people say, well, why should I do this? I've already tried everything. Nothing's worked. Why would I believe you? And I'm going, you shouldn't. But embrace the disbelief. In other words, is connecting to what is. And so it's not about believing David Hansen or the doctor or believing in ayahuasca or believing in some treatment. It's not about belief because belief is a way of repressing negativity. So it's a matter is you actually embrace your disbelief. You actually embrace the pain. Remember, you can't change directions until you know where you're starting from. So let's take emotional pain for a second is that you have to train your brain. This is a trained, learned skill. You have to train your brain to feel vulnerable. You have to train your brain to feel mental pain. And you have to do it, and you have to titrate it, because if you just get open it right up, and that's where we may have had this manic episode in relationship to it, is that that's my point, is that it's a learned skill without a beginning or end point to it. Some days are better than others for the rest of your life. But as you become aware, okay, I'm triggered, I'm anxious, and you just use the tools or drop it back down, you just become very skilled at the tools. So you're not going it's the, you're letting go of the need for control because you can control things on your own terms. Mm -hmm. So with the ayahuasca, again, you opened up as you learn to, I use the word, I hate the word control, but as you learn to control your chemical reactions in your body, you're safe. Mm -hmm. So as you create the sense of safety, then your body's inflammation goes down and again, bipolar is an inflammatory disorder. Hmm. And the way you solve bipolar hmm. is you decrease the inflammation. So that's where the sequence is so critical of becoming aware of the problem, becoming aware of the nature of the solution, and becoming aware of your specific variables that are affecting things. And then the second step is you treat every aspect at the same time. For instance, if you're not sleeping, we know lack of sleep actually causes chronic pain causes it doesn't it's not because people in chronic pain can't sleep lack of sleep actually causes chronic pain because it increases inflammation mm -hmm. exercise um all sorts of things come into play so there's always many factors that affect the perception of pain so again the first step of solving chronic pain mental and physical is understanding the problem the second step is deal with every aspect at the same time it's like fighting a forest fire which unfortunately is a bad metaphor these days but everything counts then the final step, which is logical and critical, is that you're complex, chronic pain is complex, you're much different than I am, I'm much different than the person next to me. The only person that can solve the problem is you. So what happens is you internalize these concepts, you start processing information differently, 
your brain starts to change. And there's a certain tipping point where once you tip into this new life, your brain changes, you actually can't go back. Because what's happening, your brain's changed structure, you've now changed the filter, and you actually now keep changing it the rest of your life. That's why I'm excited about the project because, again, I quit spine surgery for do, because of this, because I realized that we're, we got to, medicine has to get this diagnosis correct. We keep calling, we keep blaming symptoms on structural problems where it's a physiological problem. And as you calm the nervous system down, people's symptoms physically disappear. I had 17 physical symptoms that were present. My ears don't ring. These skin rushes don't pop up. My feet aren't burning. My stomach's okay. I don't have incredible crippling anxiety. I don't have migraine headaches anymore. I don't have neck pain. I don't have back pain. I had an endless number of symptoms based on altered body chemistry. So it sounds like snake oil. Well, how can you have so many symptoms? Well, guess what? If your whole body is on fire, each organ right. system is going to respond in its own way. So as you change a chemical soup or change a chemical bath that all these organs live in, all these physical symptoms disappear. Every one of them is gone. They've been gone for 20 years. Mm. My patient had the same thing. They have 15, 20 symptoms, almost every one of them, as they start calming down the body's chemistry, their mood improves, pain drops down, migraines disappear. And what happens as you quit fighting anxiety and frustration, you begin to thrive at a level that you never knew existed before. So what happened, I was seeing three to five patients every week having surgery on normal spines for their age, normal spines, having really bad things done to them. The downside of a failed spine surgery is a disaster. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I've watched conservatively at least 1,500 patients go to pain-free, doing nothing as far as risk. So it's a process. You engage in it, you know, little parts of it the rest of your life. You just learn how to calm down your nervous system. So I'm watching hundreds of patients go to pain-free with no cost, minimal risk, I'm watching dozens of patients go through really bad damaging procedures. And I ran across a kid about a year before I quit practice who was paralyzed by an operation that he didn't need. And I just said, I'm done. I cannot watch this anymore. So again, we're still watching people patient after patient or person after person, I'm not in practice anymore, um, get better without surgery. That's why I wrote the book that she just held up, do you, do you really need spine surgery? And it helps a person look at it and say, okay, my problem is surgical or not surgical. My nervous system is either calm or fired up. So it creates a quadrant, four, four choices. You either have a surgical problem and you're calm or a surgical problem and you're stressed, or you have a non-surgical problem and you're calm or a non-surgical problem and you're stressed. Anytime you're stressed, surgery doesn't go well. Your inflammatory markers are up, the pain's higher, the infection rate's higher, the outcomes are very poor, but it's particularly true if you have a problem that's not even surgical in the first place. Mm-hmm. So there's sort of this urban legend that, well, okay, we've tried everything, let's try surgery. Well, it makes sense if there's something to fix. If you can't identify a problem, then why would you do surgery? Probably 70% of spine surgery should never be done. So wow. Even if you, let me just ask you, okay, so one of the most common operations in our country right now, $20 billion a year, is doing a lumbar fusion for back pain. Mm-hmm. Okay. Guess what? What would you want What would you want the success rate to be from that operation before you did surgery? I mean, it's a pretty big operation. 
Oh, I mean, having gone through what I've gone through and know the things that can go wrong with the surgery and, and knowing how lucky I, I got even with things going wrong, I would want the success rate to be bare minimum, like, 50 percent like and that's and that's because i'm a bit of a gambler i um tried 22 percent wow so yeah. so is we also know that disc degeneration has been proven to not be a source of pain it is the most common reason we do the surgery we're operating on something that's been proven not to be the problem mm -hmm. it's got a 22 percent success rate we're up to 20 billion dollars a year it's horrible it's awful. Mm. So that's wow. a whole different topic. But I mean, medicines become very predatory. And again, we're treating symptoms. But remember, the symptoms are the result of the body's response to the environment. If you feel safe, guess what? You feel great. Minimal physical symptoms. If you're under constant threat, your body's going to respond in kind. This is going to create lots of physical symptoms. So the root cause, if you're going home to an abusive marriage, or going to an angry boss or being bullied at school, that creates physical symptoms, right? You create yeah. chemical change that creates physical symptoms. So the problem is the environment and your response to the environment is not a headache. You know what I mean? The, so, I mean, I had one gentleman I walked in the room, I was with one of my fellows. I said, look, this is not very hard. It does not take much time. So the guy's about seven years old, he had chronic neck pain. And I said, you know, sometimes people get physical symptoms because they have a lot of stress in their life. I said, is there anything going on in your life that's been unusual over the last couple of years? He holds his hand up like a gun and pulls his middle fingers a trigger and he goes, my son. And I go, what happened? And he says he was shot. So it often means suicide. And I said, well, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry about that. And uh, he says he was murdered. Turns out that his grandson was a paranoid schizophrenic murdered his father. That's stress. Wow. That is stress. That's the diagnosis. It's not neck pain, right? Yeah. So that's yeah. what I'm saying. Medicine yeah. right now, we don't allow doctors to talk to their patients. If the patient doesn't feel safe with their doctor, where do you feel safe? Mm -hmm. So without talking to the patient, without, without the patient being heard, we don't understand the problem, first of all. Second of all, the patient doesn't feel heard then the patient doesn't feel safe, which makes the pain worse. Then we treat symptoms randomly. Most of the treatments, by the way, in spine surgery are been, have been documented to be ineffective. So then we're offering, offering you a big operation that's been proven to be ineffective. And then we also know that dashed, repeatedly dashing hopes induces depression. So that's why I'm really unhappy with the medical profession right now. Again, that's the reason why I quit my practice to do this. And the fun part for me, I, I have incredible number of people getting better, incredibly happy, self-directed, minimal resources. And I feel honored to be able to be a part of that. I also feel like, of course, that, I, uh, that my suffering, which is so severe for 15 years, is worth something. So it's been an honor to give this back to people but it's hard to watch what's going on. At the same time, I call it the curse of awareness. When I see what's so easily possible and available, you know, watching people walk into the doctor's offices, trusting them, right now the situation is not to be trusted. Hmm. 
Well, I have a, a zillion questions I'd like to ask you. Most of them are huge cans of worms. Um, but uh, I, you need to you need to get out of here. Unfortunately, you have a call to jump on. Uh, I'll have to have you back on uh, again sometime and and do some follow ups. I, uh, I I have many many more uh, topics for you, and I'm sure listeners do as well. So I want to make sure that you get both of David's books. This one that I have, Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? And uh, Back in Control. And what other, uh, you, you have um, uh, backincontrol.com, and then there was, was well, it I'm Doc Journey? Yeah, I'm really excited about this. It's called The Doc Journey, the docjourney.com. And it's a straight line pathway from A to Z. So it, again, it represents the evolution of successful patients of awareness, hope, forgiveness, and play. And then each lesson has enough depth to it to answer your questions. You don't have to do that. But it, re it represents the consistently su successful sequence of people that have healed. So I've essentially rewritten everything. I'm working on it right now as we speak. And I'm excited about it. And, and again, we have part of the doctrine includes um, twice a week question and answer periods. We have webinars. There's also video tutorials. But it's just a much more efficient way of getting through the process. So we're extremely excited about it. People are getting better faster, more quickly. And again, if you have interest, I'd love to actually talk to you more offline about getting you through the bipolar thing. Because I can't tell you the number of people I have with bipolar that are just fine. They're fine. Yeah. And I, it's not very much fun. I would uh, I would love to talk to you about that. Absolutely. Yeah, any time, if you have the time to do it. Yeah. That would, be, uh, that would be absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Love to connect with you on that one. Awesome. Well, uh, terrific. David Hanscom, everybody. Thank you, David, for joining me. And thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you more next week. Thanks, Shane.